Brought to you with some announcements before we get into this episode. Strange Loop 2020 is taking place September 23rd and 24th with a party on the 22nd. Registration is now open for both Strange Loop and the pre-conference events. For more information and to register, visit thestrangeloop.com. RacketCon is coming back in person this fall. Hosted at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, RacketCon is back for their 12th RacketCon on October 28th through the 30th. A preliminary schedule is up, along with an attendance survey at the site. And make sure to watch con.racket-lang.org for more information and announcements. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Eris Proctor, and this week with us we have Sriram Krishnamurthy. Sriram, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi. Uh, thank you for having me. This is a amazing podcast, and it's, it's remarkable to see how long you've kept it going. So it's a real honor to be on here with all these other illustrious people you've had on the podcast. So uh, I'm Sriram. I currently work at Brown University. I'm a professor of computer science. Brown is up in Providence, Rhode Island, in the northeastern part of the United States, kind of sandwiched between Boston and New York. I've been doing functional programming since 1989, cut my teeth on several functional languages. I've built a few myself. So this is sort of like where my heart is. My research life and teaching life, I've wandered off into several different areas now here and there various parts of computer science and applied computer science and even things a little bit outside computer science, but my heart is always still in functional programming. And you are part of that PLT scheme family. And we've had a number of people on, <laughs> I've had a number of people guest on from the PLT scheme family, but it's always a treat to get one of those PLT scheme family lineage in <laughs> there. Thank you. So I know you from that, one of the co-authors on how to design programs. You're now with Bootstrap which is the extension yep. of that and pirate laying, which is yep. child of that all kinds of stuff. So we'll, I'm sure we'll cover that whole. Yeah. So I'll, let me tell you a little bit about how I got into functional programming. All right. So, so I was one of these kids in high school. So I grew up in India in a city called Bangalore and we had a small number of kids who kind of, we, we didn't really have teachers who knew any computer science. So we kind of had to teach ourselves. So we were in the very vanguard of computer science in school in India. And we had a group of like, you know, two to four, depending on how you want to count, who kind of really just taught each other and sat for like exams and did this stuff on our own. And the problem with that is you come out of that experience feeling very full of yourself because you don't have any real points of reference, right? You don't have any anybody who you can meet and say, wow, this person knows so much more than I do, right? You know as much as everybody you've ever met who's worked in this field, which is like your three classmates or something. And the eye-opening experience for me was I came to college in the United States. I really was looking for the this liberal arts system. And when I found out about it, I was like, that's the thing that I've been looking for. And I figured out I have to get to the US to get to that system. And I came here 
And my first semester in college, I completely by accident, uh, and maybe by being a little bit of a loudmouth, actually, and getting tossed out of some other classes, got bumped into a class that was doing structured interpretation of computer programs. And that was an absolutely eye-opening experience. And I think SICP was written for people like me, which as I assume MIT was full of people like me, who thought they were hot spit coming into college and really needed to be told essentially that they were not. It certainly succeeded for me. And I still remember that one of the hardest programs for me in SICP was, I don't know, the second or third assignment. And what happened was I had a, the course was taught by a math professor who didn't know any scheme. He knew some Pascal, he didn't know any scheme, and this turned out to be in some ways like the saving grace of my life. Because I went to him and I remember saying, I don't know how to write this program, but if I could just have assignment statements like I had in Pascal, I think this would be really easy. And he said to me, you know, I feel the same, but I don't know how to do those in scheme. And that was great because it forced me to find a different solution that was not a traditional imperative program. And the finding of that solution, like if something clicked and like, you know, all the neurons got rewired or something like that. And from then on, you know, it was just like unicorns and, you know, I was in the future and I've been there ever since. So that, that was how I came to functional programming. And I was one of those sort of ornery kids in college. Like when I took algorithms, everybody else was programming in Pascal. So like, of course, I'm going to write everything in Scheme, you know. So I was, I was there. And I have a long story. It's the thing is, there's there are a lot of long stories. I don't know if you want to hear the Dan Friedman story. Okay, so the Dan Friedman story is great. And I've got to tell it because I want to give credit to Dan. Have you had Dan on the show? Yes, I've had Dan. And I wanted to get there. I was trying to get him yeah. back with David Christiansen, but there was a timing issue. But yeah, yeah, there's, you can never get enough Dan. So what happened was my best friend from undergrad, who was a few years ahead of me, went off to grad school to study with Dan. And he knew I was a little bored as an undergrad, so he basically started sending me his homework assignments. And, well, I would try to work through these assignments, and I didn't quite know how to solve some of them. I thought I had solutions, but I didn't have anyone around me who could grade the work. So I wrote to my friend, and I said, you know, what do I do? And he said, I don't know. I mean, we just emailed Dan with solutions. So why don't you try doing the same? And, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm a student at a different college. He's never heard of me in his entire life. So I figured, you know, what the heck, let's give it a shot. So I just sent him email and I said, here's a solution to this problem. And Dan, Dan would send these, these, uh, I've always considered Dan like the Yoda of programming languages. He would send these extraordinarily mystical one-line replies where, you know, there was deep insight, but it was so deep, you had to sort of know already what the solution was sometimes to understand what he was saying. You know, like you'd get a message back and the whole email would be, you'd send like this long solution and the entire email would be, I see an append in there. That, would, that was the entire email. I remember one of those. So this goes on for about 10 weeks. And I, you know, I saw my friends are sending me these, these problem sets and I'm sending him these solutions. 10 weeks in, he says, who are you, by the way? I'm like, oh God, the gig is up. So I told him who I was, and then, you know, I went over to meet him, and, and he said, you know, you should go work at Rice with my student, Matthias Felison. I actually went to Rice because I was going to do algorithms. I spent a year and a half doing uh, computational biology. That's what I was, re I was really excited about doing algorithms, but then computational biology, I was like a little nervous. I don't really know any biology. I'm not very good at it, and I thought, you know, I'm being very successful, but this, is, this gig is not going to last. Sooner or later, somebody's going to find out I don't know anything, and at that point, the whole, like, the whole edifice is going to come crumbling down. And so I was looking for something else. And then I read this, like the most stunning paper I've ever read. It was a paper that happened to be written by Matthias. I was like, this is what I would like to do with my life. 
and I want to someday write a paper this beautiful. So I switched to programming languages, went to work with Matthias. And then there's a lot, you've probably heard the story about how PLT scheme came to be, et cetera. So I'm not going to bother repeating all of that. But so I, I was like, I don't know, I know person number one who signed up with Matthias or something like that. And that's how we got the whole gig off the ground. And then I had this astoundingly great partnership with Matthew Flatt and Robbie Findler, amongst other people. It was Cormac Flanagan and Andrew Wright and John Clements and various other people. Matthew and Robbie, like these two people way smarter than me who sort of brought me along and said, you know, and we did this thing together. And it was one of these like great partnerships of a lifetime. And then, you know, Dr. Scheme came out of that and uh, PLT Scheme came out of that. How did Zen Programs came out of that and et cetera, et cetera. So, so that that sort of like that was my path to the starting point at PLT scheme, and Matthew and Robbie each had their own different paths. And you're trying to do an assignment statement, and you're like, "This is off the books. Apparently, this is not going to happen. I got to get that light." You said you've at rainbows and unicorns ever since. Has it been the Lisp world of rainbows and unicorns ever since with the scheme stuff, or did you ever venture into any of the other functional languages to see? what things were there and take inspiration from anything else? So, yeah, absolutely. So one of the great things about working with Matthias is, Matthias is, a, an, I mean, this is Matthias Felicen, is people who don't know him well probably don't realize this, but he's a very undoctrinaire person. He's extraordinarily smart and extraordinarily opening to learning new things that'll expand his horizons. So one of the things he did so in fact, one of the reasons I didn't work with him when I went to grad school is because he wasn't there. He disappeared. He'd gone off to Carnegie Mellon. And the reason he'd gone to Carnegie Mellon was on sabbatical was he said, I want to learn about types. And he'd actually just recently written what turned out to be one of the seminal papers about types at that point. And in fact, did two seminal pieces of research related to types that everybody uses now. But he said, I really want to understand types. And I'm going to go to the person who I think is going to teach it to me best. And I'm going to go work with Bob Harper at CMU. Right. And so he went off to CMU to learn from Bob and, you know, they, they to teach each other, I guess. They have this, you know, there, there's this fantastic partnership, the two of them. And so he went to say, I'm going to learn the CMU way of thinking about types and I'm going to bring that back with me. Right. And so he came back with like monographs, you know, like Bob Harper has this programming languages textbook. I recently found like version 0.1 of that because Bob had just started to write that and Matthias brought it back and said, no matter how rough a state this is in, this is what I want all of you to learn. I want you to like take in this view of the world, right? He wanted to make sure we had this view of the world just as firmly implanted in our heads as, you know, the sort of the schemey view of the world that we were all coming from. And so that's something I really admire about him. Another thing he actually did was at some point he sent email to us and said, you know, there's this guy I'm meeting here at CMU who was, who's now a professor at MIT, who you really should know about this guy because he's doing software engineering in an astoundingly different way than all the other software engineers. And that was a person named Daniel Jackson who built a language called Alloy. It's a language, it's a relational specification language and an analysis tool that goes with it. So it's kind of like a lightweight uh, verification engine. It's a model exploration engine and all of these things combined. Remarkably tasteful, you know, extraordinarily elegant work. And again, it's not the kind of thing Matthias does at all, but he wanted to make sure we were exposed to it. And I took to it and, you know, that working with Daniel has been like one of the great, one of the most productive and wonderful things that has happened in my career. And I don't know if I would ever heard of him if Matthias had not introduced us and told us about him, Right. 
again, went off to learn pure functional programming. And, you know, that was something I got sort of from the Indiana crew, but also from the Rice crew. So so I think he was always very, very open in his attitude to the world and passed that on certainly to, you know, I think to all of his students, certainly to me. And I also had the benefit. So the other thing he did was my first semester there, he said, there's this new professor who's just joining my second semester. His name is Moshe Vardi. And you really should know what he does. Right. And Moshe is like one of the masters of computer aided verification. Right? He's behind some of the most seminal algorithms and verification, some of the great theoretical work. And so Moshe offered the seminar and I signed up for the seminar. In fact, all the people who signed up for some Moshe's first seminar were all PLT students, Cormac Flanagan, David, uh, I forget his name, and myself, the three of us took the seminar. And again, I took every seminar that Moshe offered. So I came out of Rice with this understanding of like, you know, software engineering from a formal side, various aspects of PL. Rice also had this great compilers, PL groups too. Actually, we sort of had three PL groups in the, in the department. And I had this perspective from Moshe. So all these different perspectives have always informed me. And I've always enjoyed being able to pick and choose from them. You know, later in life, I've been extraordinarily fortunate to be able to hang out with people like, you know, Martin Odersky and Joe Armstrong and so on. And, you know, I've always tried to, uh, Paul Hudak was a great influence on my life. So I've always been able to sort of find these people and, you know, pick up at least something from them. Maybe only Phil Wadler was great to me. I did a sabbatical with him, right? So it's a sort of uh, extraordinarily fortunate existence where I somehow get to just like talk to these people who are much smarter and more knowledgeable and accomplished than me. And they pass on tidbits and I'm, you know, able to pick up, pick up with about 10% of them and make something of it. So you're broad and I just. There's a little hint in there that you touched on that I want to expand some because it's that great debate of dynamic versus static typing. Oh, yeah. Matthias went off, did typing, did a bunch of type theory stuff. You're still back in the dynamic world. And I know there's some things that get lost about like the static versus dynamic typing and then the strong versus weak type systems and things like that where... I've noticed there are plenty of good dynamic programmers and it seems like the list, there's a strong core of list people are like, no, we want dynamic, but we absolutely think in types and like we will spec things out. And I was wondering where your view of the type system comes in. Yeah, that's a great question. So I feel very, very comfortable in both disciplines. Thanks to the training I got from Matthias, sort of the, the Bob Harper secondhand training, I feel extremely comfortable in languages like standard ML. But I'm also, you know, at sort of at heart, I'm a racket person too, right? So I think pirate is actually an interesting thing to look at from that perspective, because pirate is a dynamic language, but it can also be used as a completely static language. It has a type checker that you can either turn on or off. And it also picks up some ideas from the Haskell world, like, you know, the way of expressing refinement, right? And so all these different perspectives come together in pirate, and that's on purpose, because I, you know, Pirate, I, we designed Pirate, uh, we is now Joe Pollitz, Ben Lerner, but also some other students, Daniel Patterson and others have been involved over the years. We designed Pirate to be a really good language for a certain kind of educational experience. And there's not one way there. There's not one path right? There are places in which the dynamic approach is more helpful, the places in which the static approach is more helpful. And I also have worn multiple hats. Sometimes I wear a hat as a programmer, and there are many things I can see, many benefits I can see to, you know, to living in a dynamic world. There's all kinds of power you get, all kinds of expressive power you seem to get. But on the other hand, I'm also a verification person at heart, right? And 
the more you can lock things down and the more the richer static statements you can say about them, the more you can verify sort of stands to reason, right? So so I wear both those perspectives. And, you know, I've got, sort of gone back and forth all the time. So in fact, a lot of the, I would say, relatively important early work on static types for JavaScript came out of my research group. It came with Arjun Guha and Joe Pollitz and others. Claudia Saftoyo and other people. In fact, we are about, uh, so we're saying this in 2022, summer 2022, we just published a paper which is about to go public on static types for Python. So I'm more than happy to look at type, you know, like this idea of layering type systems onto dynamic languages, I think is a fascinating question. And so what I can say is we really do not yet fully understand programmer thought processes. We have a lot of opinions. There's a lot of heat and very little light. And I think it's a valuable research question to explore. So that's really my take on it. I don't have a personal stake in the ground on one side or the other. I am deeply sympathetic to both sides. I completely understand the static side because the verification person to me, in fact, looks at them and says, these are weak, man. You can do a lot stronger than this when it comes to trying to verify programs, right? But I can also look at the dynamic side and say, I really get what you're doing and the systems that I built that I would much rather build this way than have to build in, you know, build in the static style. In particular, when you build things like languages, when you build libraries and certain kinds of infrastructure, the ability to sort of not be constantly interrupted by the type system is something I deeply appreciate, right? And so even there, right, like sometimes you want types above, but not fewer types below, right? So there are all these trade-offs, but I think some of it is also very cognitive and it has a lot to do with how people work and how people think. And we seem to know almost nothing about this at all. As a discipline, we have no knowledge. A few years ago, we did this fun little experiment. We were, you know, so people, people like to talk about using HCI methods to design programming languages. So I said, okay, what would happen if we were to try to crowdsource language design? Okay, so we did this, we set it up. It is a very, very modest experiment. What we did was we said, we don't want to get input on syntax, right? You never recover from that pit. So we're going to fix the syntax and we're going to, we put out tasks on Mechanical Turk where basically we said, look, we're designing a new programming language and you get to tell us like, here are different behaviors for a particular piece of code. You tell us which behavior you want, basically, right? And so we gathered up all this data and what we found was roughly speaking, so I'm sort of very roughly speaking here, people seem to roughly speaking fall into two camps that when you look at the semantics they wanted, there were people who wanted strictness and then there were people who wanted flexibility, right? So loosely speaking, to kind of caricature a little bit, there were people who wanted something that looked like Haskell or ML or Scheme. And then there were people who wanted something that looked like a typical scripting language, right? But the strict people had a pretty strong agreement about what it means to be strict, right? Like if I'm not completely sure what this is doing, I want this to be an error, right? I don't want to have to second guess the language. The dynamic people wanted to make as many utterances as possible have a meaning, but they couldn't agree on what those meanings were, right? So, so when, you look at, when you look at the patterns, you know, I'm sort of drawing pictures with my hand in the sky now that people can't see, but you'd get like this large cluster of agreement and then this other cluster of agreement, but one cluster of agreement was a very strong agreement. The other cluster of agreement was very weak agreement, right? And so, I mean, it was meant to be actually a little bit of a joke paper, to be honest, right? Like, ah, oh, let's just see what happens. But it, there's actually a serious point underneath there. Like, what if we try to figure out from programmers what they want, right? And there's actually a, another serious point underneath it, which is, 
if we could get people like maybe maybe it makes sense you know we talk about personalized medicine right maybe what we want is personalized programming languages right each of us gets to state our preferences and then we get the language that's designed for us right and we have to figure out interoperability but for that you need people to at least be consistent because if people are not consistent then we can build a language for them and we found consistency was actually hard to attain right so do we get consensus no do we get consistency no so i think there's a the short version is i think there's a wide open space and there's a lot to explore using a variety of like you know human factors research couple points the most recent one is give people the language they want that sounds like a spoken like a true lisper <laughs> of course of course i'm you know hashlang was you know came out of my dissertation so <laughs> where do you think i'm coming from but the other part of that is there, and the reason I wanted to touch on that is Racket, the evolution of PLT scheme, has the hashlang right. of typed Racket. So it's like the, ver yep. the very exactly. well blending. And this is kind of where I fall, I think, is I do like types, but there is a dynamic side of that I like. Yep. But when I am in dynamic, I do think in types a lot and what the high level contract is. And even though I may not be applying types everywhere, layering in those types at some points does sound nice. For like the outside yep. boundaries, here's the internal, here's the external API. Are you going to meet your contract when you call me kind of thing? And that's what I was like, the type view of someone in that PLT language view, I figured would be interesting because you go, here's dynamic with all this stuff. Here's, I'm going to build my own language. I'm going to do whatever, redefine stuff. But I also have type track it at my beck and call that I may fold in on certain pieces of right. the application. Right. So obviously, you know, that that's that's uh, you have just given the perfect racket response, right? In fact, I will go further and I'll say racket actually I I've come to feel embodies a principle that I don't know any other programming language does, which is all other languages at some very profound level are deeply opinionated and think they've gotten it right. Right? Racket basically admits that we may not have gotten it right. What we should do as a language is really provide you a service with which you can build the language that you think is the right one, right? Sometimes it might just be hashlang racket, sometimes it might be typed racket, but you know, even in, if you add static types to racket, there's at least three or four typed rackets floating around there. So there's you know typed racket, of course, the typed racket, you know, Sam Tobin Hochstadt's work, but there's also a collection of languages called PLAIT, PLAI typed, and so on that Matthew Flatt created for my book, PLAI. And that's really the ML type system inside Racket, which is a very different type system, right? And so you've already got two very different views of the world of what a typed language should look like sitting, coexisting happily in the Racket world and cooperating with untyped Racket as well. Right. So I think that's certainly a very reasonable perspective. And of course, sort of the racket party line and one that I, I deeply believe in. But I'm going to give you a bit of a counter argument. One thing that happens. So as somebody who has worked in many time, many, many times on retrofitting type systems onto existing dynamic languages. Right. I've done it for Scheme. You know, I've done it for JavaScript. I've done it for Python and so on. And I've done I've seen this so many times. What happens is it's actually an extremely difficult task. You have all this code in the wild. You want to impose a discipline onto that code. And invariably, that code has not been written with a discipline in mind, 
Or even, you know, as you said, like many, many dynamic language programmers actually think in a typed way. But the problem is each one's got their own typing discipline that they've captured in their own idiosyncratic way or maybe not captured at all and sometimes lapsed on and so on. So when you retrofit a type system, the problem you're trying to deal with is how much code am I willing to reject? And then you run up against a very practical problem. Nobody builds a, gra you know, there's, you know, this like the whole gradual typing thing, right? Nobody builds a gradual type system for a language that doesn't have any programs in it. But by the time the language becomes large enough, you know, popular enough to have lots of programs in it that people want a gradual type system for it, well, it's already gone off and done all kinds of crazy things, right? And all sorts of like weird patterns have gotten embedded. You know, you have, for example, just as a simple example, you have return types and how do you signal errors? And maybe you have like a void or a null type, null value. And so now you have ad hoc unions and people are allowed to do all kinds of ad hoc things. And so you can be opinionated and reject those programs. So for example, if you go to the plate language or PLAI type language in Racket and you try to write a untagged union, it'll just reject and say, sorry, that's not valid code. Bye-bye, right? But that's because the language is not designed to take existing Racket code and bring it in. Right? And if you want to do that, you pay the price, which could be quite significant. But if you take this existing code, it's not going to follow a discipline or the discipline it follows is so complicated. You either get a very large, sophisticated, brittle type system, or you get a very permissive type system, which maybe it doesn't even give you, you know, maybe doesn't find so many errors, but also maybe doesn't give you much of a basis for strong reasoning. Right. So that's the problem with this sort of retrofitted approach. So now I'm sort of playing the counter argument here, right? That's the problem with the retrofitting approach is you also get sort of weak and I feel like sometimes unsatisfying type systems. It's like, this is the best we can do with where we started from. But had you started from a different place, you could have ended up with something vastly better. And I think a good example of that is, you know, Rust, right? Because Rust has a very strong opinion about what a type system should look like, and it's enforced from the very beginning. There is no, you know, there's no loopholes, there's no retrofitting, there's no gradualism, nothing, right? This is the Rust type system, and this is what lifetimes are, and this is what borrowing is, and so on, right? And it's it's it can be a bit of a challenge for a person to learn, that's fine. But in return, you get some really strong reasoning about your program. Right? And you get to carry that all the way through. Your compiler gets to use it. Like every static tool, every editor, everything gets to use those tools. And you don't have like these brittle, hacky, like, you know, regex tools that are trying to make sense out of your program. Right? So that's the counterpoint. And so that's why so Pirate is a good case study. Because in Pirate, we said we eventually want to have a typed version. We're not going to do it right away, but we want to have a type version, and we know what kind of type system we want for it. It's going to be an ML-style type system. It's not going to be like typed racket, which means we made various design decisions in the language and in the libraries so that it would be ML-typable, even though the type system does not exist. Right. So all three of us, knowing the ML type system, basically designed and programmed with that type system in our head so that when the prototype system eventually did show up, Matthew Kolossik helped build, a, build that for us. Programs would just work. They would just type because we designed for that. That was leading into one of the next questions, not technically about Pirate, but the type system of Erlang with just mm. 10 types overall. So when you get gradual typing like Dialyzer, it's just, and again, some basic Lisp stuff where it's like, nope, all you have are lists, symbols, atoms, numbers, and strings. So if you have, or yep. maybe, maybe a socialist or things like that, or maps, for yep. things like closure, where yep. it's like, I can gradually type this because the types I have, 
I can count on one or two hands and it's just a yes. nested structure yes. of that type. So I was going to ask, is that right. similar to the pirate thing where it's like very deliberate about, does that make the typing easy, the easier in the reference you're talking about? No, in pirate, we actually went the other way. In pirate, we built algebraic data types into the language. And we have some various native algebraic data types, you know, like the libraries use things like option types or, you know, even the equality, there's an equality operator that basically returns an algebraic data type, uh, variance of an algebraic data type as its result, right? So that is baked deep into the design of the language so that we actually want there to be many types, not a small number of fixed types, right? So it's very the opposite of sort of the Lisp-Erlang kind of experience, Lisp-Erlang prologue languages like that. Right? It's more of a maximalist types. We want as many types as possible. Express yourself richly. Right? So when you want to talk about a binary tree, right? if you go back to like old school scheme, what's a binary tree? Well, it's some weird pattern of listy things. Right? You put quotes here and maybe some symbols there and stuff like that. And you sort of, if you squint at it the right way, it's a tree. And if you accidentally put the wrong con somewhere like, ah, you'll get like a half-baked tree. You know, you have a binary tree, but it's got three children. You ignore the third child. You never even know it was there. You know, that's you know, you recognize that pattern. That's what happened. That's what tends to happen. In Pirate, the philosophy is there's an algebraic data type and you create an algebraic data type to represent the kind of binary tree you want. We're not even going to bake them in. Right. You could have like, you know, descending trees and ascending trees and you can have like, you know, trees of uh, people and trees of numbers and all these other things. And you have polymorphic data types and you write all of the things down very explicitly. And that's the world we want you to live in. We want you to live in a rich world of expression, not a impoverished world that says there's, like you said, you know, there's data types you can count off on one hand or two hands. Makes sense. So we talk about pirate a bit. Do you want to kind of go into the evolution of the how to design programs? And I, when I had Matthias Felison on, I believe he talked about it a little bit, but a recap of how to design programs into what is now bootstrap project, bootstrap world stuff and sure. pirate coming out of that and how, how all that's evolution kind of fits in. Yeah. So how to design programs really starts from the little schemer, right? And little Lisper, right? Which goes all the way back to 1973. So little Lisper, Dan Friedman's book has these uh, laws of programming. So and when Matthias came along, Matthias and Dan wrote the little schemer, which has these laws you're supposed to follow. But there's different opinions about these books. Some people absolutely love them. Some people don't like them at all. And the point is, they are very idiosyncratic. They're, they're very much an acquired taste, I think, for some people. So how to design programs came out of an effort to say, let's be very explicit. There are all kinds of implicit guidelines you can glean from the little schema, but we want to be really explicit. In many ways, it was also a reaction to Sigpi. Sigpi is one of my all-time favorite books, but it's actually a magic trick. It's not real. It's more than a book, right? Because Sigpi lives actually in a sort of weirdly impoverished data universe. I, I was kind of stricken by this when I went back and reread Sigpi, or at least uh, glanced through Sigpi again. If you look through the first, you know, quite a few pages, all the problems are numeric. Right. And they're all like, you know, sort of geeky math number problems, right? You know, primality testing and this and that, right? Which kind of maybe makes sense for a certain kind of technical crowd, but it's not a sort of very universal set of interesting problems. And so SIGP manages to avoid the question of how do you structure programs? 
it has very profound statements to make about how do you structure systems, right? It talks about cues and it talks about laziness and it talks about, you know, the sort of these compositional ideas in the large. But at the small, it's basically, it's like, well, we're going to show you some programs and you're smart, you'll figure it out, okay? How to design programs came about sort of as a, you know, people like to think of it sometimes as like a sick pea light or something, and it's not that at all. It's actually a very different kind of book. It's sort of, it's almost like the duel of sick pea in some ways. It starts from the observation that programming is actually a very difficult activity because what happens, a programmer is confronted with a problem statement and a blank screen, either a blank sheet of paper or a blank computer editor, right? If it's a computer editor, it's even got this cursor sort of like blinking at you and sort of taunting you, right? Like, go ahead, type, let me see what you can do, right? And you're going to have to fill up this page or the screen with some collection of magical incantations that are exactly going to do what the problem statement said. When you think about it, that's actually an extraordinarily difficult ask to make of someone. And what can we do to make that process cleaner, simpler, easier, less painful, more correct, right? And so what How Design Program does is it takes this problem of this, what we call the blank page syndrome, right? How do I get from the blank page to the correct solution? And breaks it down into a set of steps, each of which takes you a step closer. And I'm not going to go into the whole design recipe because I'm sure Matthias talked about it in quite some detail, but it's actually quite an interesting layering of concrete, abstract, concrete, abstract, concrete, abstract steps. And there are lots of deep dependencies and later steps on previous ones. So that's what How to Design Programs is about. It's about how to help you solve that problem and come up with a nice, clean solution. We also always have had this attitude that Programs have to be maintained, right? Any interesting program has to be maintained. And any software engineer will tell you, well, one thing you need for maintenance is traceability. How do I know why this line of code is here? Can I justify it? And you won't get any of that out of most programming books. In contrast, HTTP is designed to make traceability as central as possible. So that when a problem evolves, even in, a, even in a homework, right, even in artificial homework, you can imagine a problem evolving. You get a richer and richer data type, richer and richer set of functionality. You want the student to be able to know where do I edit, where do I not edit, how do I edit. You want student two to take over from student one. All of these things, even in an introductory programming class, you can start to see these issues arise, right? So that's, what how design, how, that's where how design programs came from. And in fact, over the past few years, my colleague Kathy Fizzler and I have done a numerous a set of numerous research papers that have studied both the strengths and weaknesses of this and also tried to like flesh out some of the details. And we're also starting to come up with our own variations of it. This is our book called Data-Centric Introduction to Computing, which is kind of a, our attempt to go off. It's sort of a, think of it as like a, a Git fork, right? We've sort of forked our version of uh, HTTP. We've taken the design recipe, but we're making our fork using Pirate, and we're trying out some experiments and doing some research. And I'm hoping in a few years, we'll have some pretty authoritative answers. And then we can merge that back in with HTTP. And maybe there'll be a third edition of HTTP that incorporates these ideas. So that's the HTTP story. Bootstrap is fascinating. Bootstrap is actually a very interesting story. So the genius behind it is a person named Emmanuel Schanzer. So Emmanuel actually was exposed to what was then Dr. Scheme and how to design programs when he was an undergrad at Cornell, where he studied under Greg Morissette, who incidentally had hung out with Matthias when Matthias was listing CMU, right? So, so you can see, uh, you know, academia, of course, being the world's smallest village, you can see all these connections. So Emmanuel goes off to Microsoft, works for a while, decides he'd really rather be a teacher. He goes off to teach math 
and sees a student struggling with some ideas like functions and says, you know, I think there's a better way to do this. Instead of teaching it the way the math textbooks do, I think I can use programming to do it. In particular, I think functional programming would be really useful. And, you know, I saw this functional programming stuff in college from Greg when we learned some, you know, the scheme stuff. What if I try to use scheme in my classroom to teach students about this, these math concepts? And it turns out it's actually working quite well. So he ends up in the Boston area and goes over to meet Matthias. Matthias says, look, if you're interested in education, you should go down and meet, uh, you know, Kathy and Shriram. So he comes to meet Kathy and me. There's a long story. There's actually a very amusing story involving uh, commuter rails and so on, which I'll leave out for now. So the bottom line is the three of us formed this collaboration. So, so we had always had this big outreach project related to how to design programs where we were trying to take it to like collegiate professors and so on. And we had like all the sort of success numbers you want to see, you know, ratings were good, et cetera, et cetera. We had grant money. And yet at some level, I had this like feeling in my gut that we weren't quite punching it out of the park. And so we took a bit of a hiatus and then purely by coincidence, Emmanuel shows up and says, this is what I'm doing. And we're like, this sounds amazing. So Kathy, Emmanuel, and I teamed up and Emmanuel had already created this nascent thing called Bootstrap with Matthias's help. And then Kathy, Emmanuel, and I teamed up and turned this into this big project. So what we do in Bootstrap is our goal is the following. This is somewhat a statement about American school education, but it's actually true in many countries. Okay. So one perspective on this, sort of a very pragmatic perspective, is schools want to introduce computing, right? And every state has some computing mandate of some sort or the other these days. There's a problem, right? Usually states have these mandates, but they don't provide money for it. Even if they provide money, they're going to have to find tens of thousands of qualified teachers and those teachers have to be willing to work in a school and deal with all of the constraints that come with that rather than go off and work in you know, industry and become vastly richer and maybe not be yelled at by parents and so on, right? So where are you going to do this? And let's say you've solved all those problems, right? So somebody provides billions of dollars. You've got all the teachers. You train them. You fund them. You pay them well enough that they don't leave and go to industry. Where are you going to find the time? What are you going to kick out of the curriculum? I mean, we've already kicked out all the arts and music and all that stuff has mostly been decimated at school, many schools anyway. There's not a lot left to kick out, right? Schools have not been sitting for 100 years with a gap in their curriculum saying, and here, finally, we know how to fill up this gap in the day. So where are you going to solve, you know, it's sort of these what we call the space and time problems, okay? Where are you going to find the room? Where are you going to find time, et cetera? Bootstrap's approach comes from the opposite end. We say, look, we think you already have qualified people to teach a lot of these concepts. They are your math teachers, your physics teachers, your social studies teachers. All of these people, English teachers, business teachers, all of these people are capable of teaching some amount of computing, okay? And they can teach it within the constraints of the existing disciplines. You know, and that way we, we can train them. So, so now what are the challenges? First of all, you have to present computing in a way that is even relevant to that teacher, right? Math teachers don't get out of bed every single morning saying, oh man, I just wish I could teach computer science today. They want to teach math. Physics teachers want to teach physics. Social studies teachers want to teach social studies, right? 
So first of all, you have to say something that is actually relevant to them, and they're not going to buy your BS, right? Like, I mean, you know, everyone loves to come in BS, like, oh, it's going to be great. If you learn programming, you'll learn computational thinking, and then you'll just be better at all kinds of things, right? This is the same argument we made for centuries, right? This is the argument for everyone should learn Latin, because it will make you a much clearer thinker, and then you will just be a better human, and you'll think more clearly. And it turns out all these arguments are actually bunk. If you look at the educational literature, none of this stuff actually happens, right? So. And they're not going to fall for that. They're way too smart for that. So you can't hoodwink them. What you have to do is actually take that discipline seriously. Understand what the actual needs of the discipline are. Then design computational content that actually addresses their disciplinary need and figure out how to integrate it into their curriculum. Right? You can't go in and say, we've got a whole course. You're going to throw out your course. They're like, no, I've got a perfectly good course. Thank you very much, but thanks for trying. Right? Instead, what we do is we design modules. So we take their existing requirements and we say, we're going to figure out how to teach these same requirements, but through these other methods, through computational methods. So in the math class, for example, we say, hey, you're going to take the same number of classes, roughly, that you were going to take before, and you're going to present it to your students as, hey, we're not going to do math for a little while. We're going to go off and design a video game and build one, right? And so most kids are like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's fun. That's, that sounds not like math at all, right? But every single class in this module, every day, the game has some weakness. Wouldn't you like your game to be able to do X? Well, yeah. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to teach you a programming concept that lets you do that. And then we teach you exactly the corresponding mathematical concept. So the game is designed from all the mathematical concepts. It's designed backward. We want to hit these math concepts. Let's design the game for that purpose. And now let's piece by piece by piece get there. So when you get to the end, you've learned all these math concepts. You've implemented them as code and you have a working game, right? That's what we do in that class. In social studies, we go and do data science similarly, right? So it's always with like deep respect for the discipline that the teachers are already in. That's the essence of bootstrap. So what we call this integrated computing, right? But as you might guess, this is actually a very radical project in a very conservative garb, right? The conservative garb is, oh, look, you know, where you're going to find the space, the time, the money, and all these other things. But the radical project is, this is in many ways why computing should be taught at all, right? For most people, we, they're not going to go on to become computer programmers. We don't want the whole world to be filled with computers. Can you imagine a world where everybody is a computer programmer? What a terrible world that would be. We want poets. We want lawyers. We want historians. We want humanists. We want all these other people, right? But we'd like them to be better informed. We'd like them to have the knowledge that the computer is this very empowering device, right? We'd like them to understand how it relates to their discipline. So that's the radical project. We want them to see computing in context, in a the context they care about, so that they, and in fact, see it many times in lots of different contexts. So sooner or later, one of those contexts will click and they'll be like, that's awesome. I see how to do this. I see why this is useful, right? And eventually, I think we can figure out better ways of teaching a lot of the content we do. We have ideas for improving math education. We have great ideas for improving statistics education. I have a pet project which is completely reforming calculus education. I think calculus is one of the most beautiful ideas in human history, and it is the most mistaught, right? So that's the radical project, but in this very conservative guise. And Kathy Fisler had a talk at Lambda Days last year where she touched on a little bit of this. Mm -hmm. 
and she showed off a little bit of pirate. But that's right. Ta- Good memory. Talked about the I think it was the social studies side of like, look, here's a bunch of stuff as far as your, your social studies. Go analyze the data about the population or whatever that you're doing for social studies and go right. figure out which are the three largest cities and how much they're bigger by each other yep. kind of thing. So yeah, for people to go back, if they're wanting to see an example of that, that talk, ha- she gives a brief little example, but I can also see the old, the early computer games in the eighties, the tank battle game where you had your tanks on top of the Hills and you had to shoot your yeah. tanks over. Like you had to fire weapons and adjust your angle of trajectory. And there was wind yeah, stuff. Yeah. And so absolutely, that's also relevant. What's interesting, what's interesting is since we're on the functional, and by the way, Kathy's talks are phenomenal. So I would recommend, I would certainly recommend anybody who wants to go uh, follow up on that reference. Since we're on the Functional Geekery podcast, all of our programming is purely functional. So this is one of the things we've done is behind the scenes, we've done the research to figure out how to make all of this work in a purely functional setting. And partly because we want to be true to mathematics. And imperative programming clashes with mathematics. It doesn't reinforce mathematics. It actually takes words from mathematics and makes them mean something different. You use the word function, but it's not a function. You use the word variable, but it behaves different from math variables. Even the word number behaves a little differently, right? I mean, not, it's not an imperative thing, but if you have floating point numbers everywhere and you don't have like good number packages. So this is the problem. If you go to a math teacher and say, okay, I've got programming and it's going to be really helpful for learning math. But first, I need to explain that when you, you know, associativity doesn't work any longer, right? Or all these peculiarities that most programming languages impose, the teachers will be like, this isn't helping me in the slightest, right? I mean, what, do, what are you telling me? Like, I've got to know all this weird computer stuff. I thought this was helping me. And now you, I thought the computer was going to help me teach math. And instead, I seem to be teaching the computer and forgetting about the math. Right. And so we don't want that. We don't want that cognitive dissonance. And that's why functional programming is such a central part of what we do. And then you've got pirate. You said you started building this language. It's kind of a data oriented. You mentioned your book that you're looking at the data oriented aspect. Kathy mentioned that in her talk. It's functional. Mm -hmm. What were the other impetuses for building up this language? Because I've heard people say, and again, I'm kind of in the camp of start a monolisp. It's a very minimal mm-hmm. syntax. It doesn't get in the way. You can start to do some stuff. Mm-hmm. So like my kids, mm-hmm. I kind of want to start with a list relatively soon. So you can be like, get rid of all the weird syntax stuff. It's yep. that's something else. Get used to weird syntaxes. And then you can kind of yep. focus on some of these things as you design pirate for this stuff. What were some of yep. the implications of what made pirate pirate besides the data oriented, the functional programming side and the types that give the look of pirate? Like, where would that inspiration so from? what is Pirate, right? Pirate is a very, very conservative language in the following sense. One of our goals in Pirate is, you know, it's a little funny, right? Because all the people who are behind Pirate are all computer science professors. And yet our goal is no research. It's meant to be a no research language. And there's a reason for that is whenever you look at research languages, there's some point they're trying to make. There's some cool idea they're trying to run with. It's, I don't know, it's about actors, concurrency, or rollbacks, or whatever, right? Something that they want to explore, and that takes over the language. We don't have enough resources. We don't have, you know, big corporate backing or anything like that to actually build out all the other stuff that you need as well. So what ends up happening is you end up with this language that's 90% developed in one one narrow sliver, and then the rest of it is all like 10% developed and there's no time to think about any of it. 
right? So we said, we don't want to let that happen. We're not going to become like a single topic language. We're instead going to borrow a bunch of good ideas and ideas only go in after they're really well vetted. Instead, what we want to do is to focus on the user experience. So for example, Kathy and I with our PhD student, Guillaume Marceau, did a bunch of research into error messages for Racket. It's been very influential work on the presentation of errors, right? And so Pirate drills error messages like you would not believe. Pirate error messages are so interesting and so good that there are teachers who have built up pedagogy around the use of error messages. Just think about the last time anybody ever said something positive about error messages, much less building a pedagogy around them, right? So those are the kinds of details we drill. So what is the central, what are the central ideas in Pirate? Basically, Pirate is coming out of two traditions meeting, right? It is very much coming out of a racket student language, Dr. Racket student languages. It's certainly coming out of that. It is also coming out of our desire for a more ML-like typed world, right? Even though you can use it dynamically, you still program with algebraic data types. You still program by pattern matching over algebraic data types. You live in an algebraically data typed world. That's what we want you to do. That's an opinion, right? That's a, that's a very opinionated statement. That's what I want you to do. That's not how Racket works. So that was one point of departure. The other point of departure, and that one was, you know, you, it's trivial, right? I can sit down in an afternoon. In fact, I have sat down in an afternoon and built that for Racket. That's not hard, okay? The other point of departure is I have grown tired of fighting the syntax battle, okay? I love parenthetical syntaxes. Left to myself, I only program in parenthetical syntaxes. You know, I, I used to joke with Robbie, my heart is surrounded in a pair of parentheses, okay? I think parenthetical syntaxes are the most amazing thing. It's such a brilliant idea, and I, I feel sad for people who don't get it. Okay, but what I've also noticed after multiple decades, three decades now of working with people and students is that I'm left-handed and I, I, I sometimes joke that it's the same sort of thing, right? That's like, if there's not enough people who have it, then the thing dies away, right? If enough people do it, it becomes mainstream, right? But there's a small percentage of the population that is like persistently, annoyingly left-handed, right? And we never go away, but we never become mainstream either. And parenthetical syntaxes feel like very much the same kind of thing, right? There's like 10% of the population that's like fanatically in love with them, about 10% maybe that can tolerate or 20% that tolerate it. And then there's like at least there's 50% that rabidly hate it. And what I was frustrated about was there's, I think, a lot of really great ideas on how to design programs, and I can't get anybody in computing education research to read the damn book. They won't read it because they just open the book and they see parentheses and they just wander off, okay? So the question was, what's more important? Is the parentheses more important or are the ideas more important? Well, actually, they're both important, but at the end of the day, if I want to change education in, at scale, I have to make the ideas work for other people, right? And we looked at other languages, you know, maybe we could have done OCaml or something like that, but it's got its own weirdness. Python was simply not there, and I'm still not convinced it's there right now. JavaScript was a non-starter. So we said, okay, we're going to build a language. That way we also have control of it. We don't have to worry about some benevolent dictator coming along and saying, tomorrow we're going to change the language in the following way. And then, you know, we don't have a choice, right? So one of the cool things about being part of this sort of bootstrap group is we have expertise in everything. We can build compilers, we can build runtime systems, we can write books, we can build curricula, we can do research on them, we can do research on languages, research on curricula. So we keep everything in-house because we have all the expertise we need, right? There's not much we don't have expertise on. So 
we wanted to build that really awesome language that embodied our views, but let us take the ideas and how to design programs to the broader world. So infix syntax as I'm always delighted when people say, oh, pirate feels pleasant, right? The goal was to feel pleasant. And, you know, I look and think like, ah, it's kind of crappy. It's a stupid infix thing. But if it makes other people happy, the whole point was to please other people, not myself. I was already extremely happy, right? But there's also a little more to it, which is in Bootstrap, we have this hard constraint that a lot of schools have lockdown computers, okay? So with lockdown computers, you can't go in and say you have to install the following thing. They just won't install it. If they don't install it, your curriculum dies. And this was actually starting around 2009. So we first built a system called WeScheme, which is one of the earliest like web-based, cloud-based IDEs. 2008, 2009, Danny Yu, Emmanuel and I built that. And the idea was to say, look, you just, as long as you have a browser, which everybody now has, even in 2008, we can assume. So in fact, there's still like IE6 code sitting in there because, you know, 2008, I just said. And so as long as you have a browser, you point your browser with this and off you go running. And teachers love that, right? It's like zero hassle, of course, in 2022. You're like, yeah, yeah, sure, we all know this. But in 2008, that was kind of a radical idea to build the IDE completely on the web. But we also knew what the weaknesses were. And in particular, Joe, Ben, and I know an awful lot about JavaScript, having done all this JavaScript research. So we wanted to make Pirate be a really good language that runs in the browser. It's all built on top of JavaScript. It compiles JavaScript. There's really sophisticated technology in the background. You know, for example, there's a stop button because students write infinite loops. Well, how do you implement a stop button? You can't implement a stop button in JavaScript because, you know, a single-threaded execution. So how do you make that work? And how do you make it work seamlessly? That's all PL research and compilers research, right? But we did all of that to create this awesome experience so teachers can just go in. And this was before Chromebooks were even a thing, right? Now, with so many students running Chromebooks, what would you even build as a native binary? What's a binary, right? There isn't anything. There is just Chrome. Right. So we were lucky because we had skated to where the puck was going to be. So suddenly when school showed up and saying, we have just Chromebooks, we can't install any software. We're like, you don't have to install anything. Let me pull up your Chromebook. Watch. And teachers love it and everybody goes home happy. Right. So it was a collection of things. Infix was literally the most important thing. Create a pleasant infix syntax was the most important thing. The algebraic data types part was really like an opinionated thing that we said, let's give this a try. Right. The browser was a critical component to the underlying technology, the runtime technology. And certainly when we started doing this in like 2008, there was no other language that meaningfully ran on the web, right? So the combination of all of those factors is really what led to Pirate. And what has happened since then is we've realized how important the sort of data-centric approach, as we call it, where you start with tabular programming. So that's something that's also been built into Pirate. There's a mini like query language inside the language. And again, since we get to control it, right? If we built on top of Python, we couldn't go to Guido and say, hey, would you add like SQL queries into your language? And there's no macro system by which you can do it. Again, it's what I said, all these languages are opinionated. They don't think you are capable of making your own decisions other than bracket. So if we wanted to add it, we wouldn't have been able to add it. By controlling it, we were able to add this really elegant query syntax into the language, right? So it's also morphed from there to being an experiment in a few other things as well. And the error messages, I think, are an important part of it too, right? Like you just want that really good experience for your user. It feels like the stories you hear from the doctors as well that were like, well, I had to do 80-hour straight residencies, whereas the computer science version is like, I had to deal with ambiguous, like, could not find terminate, like, unterminated token. You're like, is that missing a parenthesis, a yep. curly brace, a semicolon? What is going on when you're like, oh, 
reached end of file. Sorry. It's like, what? Okay. Yep. So what does that mean? Yep. Yep. And you're building racket. You've got this building mindset. It's big in the racket community. I could just briefly touch on the idea of, is that something that attracts people to racket? Is that something that working in racket and some of these other lists, because building your own tools, managing your own tools doesn't seem to be a common thing, right? When you're talking about like, Oh, we'll build the language we want to use. There's a subset of lists that is like, let yes, let's build the language we want to use. There's a broader people who do lists that don't even think about that and just use it for some of the other stuff. And then you've got other people who don't even think right. about the fact of like, I'm building stuff, but I'm building stuff in what's given to me versus I can make my own tools. I can make my own shims to make my building easier. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I'm actually a bad person to answer that question for the following reason, right? There's actually a lot of people who just use Racket like any other programming language without any of the hash lang cleverness and stuff like that. They just want like a really rock solid scripting language. And they like the fact that they can grow scripts into programs. They can add types and things like that. So they, some people come to it as just like, this is a replacement for Python or something like that, right? But it runs faster in many cases. And they maybe they like the syntax. And maybe they'll tweak a little macro here and there. But it's also just a rock solid, well-engineered system that runs on all these platforms. And it does the stuff well, right? There are people who do that, and then they add some macroness, and they start to realize there's some cool stuff they can do there. There are people who come to it, I think, because there is typed racket, and they know that they can move some of the modules into type system and grow their programs and maintain them over the longer term. And then I think there are people who really grok the hashlang part. I think it would actually be a fascinating study to do at some point to understand all the different camps that are in the racket community. Because I think there are some camps that don't are sort of mutually incomprehensible, right? Like there, I'm here because of Hashlang. I'm here because I want a scripting language. I don't even know what Hashlang is, right? But I think once you get in there, it's very hard to not notice that there's this other power that's there, right? The kind of person who would use Racket is clearly somebody who's willing to step outside the mainstream at least a little bit. If you were deeply conservative, you wouldn't use Racket, period. Right. So you're at least willing a little bit to step out of the mainstream. And then when you start doing that, you start to say, huh, there's some other stuff like, wait, what's this cribble thing? Wait, why is my programming language have a document? Why, why am I? Wait, I'm, my document is a program. What are you talking about? So I write all of my books in scribble. Right. Because to me, it's obviously what else would you want? I mean, obviously, documents are programs and obviously one programmatic construction of your documents. Like what's even what's even a question here? Right. Every time I try to, but when I try to explain Scribble to other people, that's not what I say. Because if you say that, they're like, wait, what are you talking about? None of that makes any sense. I just asked them, I said, you use LaTeX, right? Yeah, I use LaTeX. Okay. You write books in LaTeX. Yeah, I write books in LaTeX. Good. And I've done that too. Great, great. Well, you know, we understand that. I'm just curious, you know, you, you must divide your book into chapters and stuff like that, like separate files. Yeah, of course, you know, make it maintainable. You're not going to write a single file, 300 pages of text. Okay. How do you get separate compilation, by the way? And there's this sort of, they just kind of stop, right? Now, these are the same people who, if their programming language didn't give them separate compilation, they'd just be up in arms, right? But they don't expect LaTeX to give them separate compilation because, I mean, everyone knows LaTeX is a giant mess, right? But why don't you have higher standards? Why don't you expect your documentation tools to give you the same separate compilation you get out of your programming tools? And then you get this, like, brilliant insight is, wait, if I get a programming language with separate compilation and the ability to express a documentation tool, then I get separate compilation for documents for free. 
whoa, what's what's going on here, right? So, so you can slowly move people from one spot to the other through this progression. And I think the community does some of that, right? And I wasn't sure how much of this you've also seen just being a teacher and seeing students come in and pick things up or be appealed to? Not so much because we use Racket in a very rudimentary way. For example, at Brown, there's a course that uses Racket for one of the introductory courses, but it's using Racket for like people who've never programmed before. So they're not going to get to the hash length stuff, right? In fact, I'll be really honest about this. I, for the longest time, did not use any hashlang in my upper-level programming languages class because I was a little embarrassed. I was like, look, the point of my class is not to teach students about stuff that I find cool. It's to teach them, you know, sort of general principles. And so, so I felt like I was being very intellectually honest by not teaching hashlang. And then about three years ago, I said, what am I doing? So we came up with this very fun idea. So this is actually Justin Pombrio, Kathy Fizzler, and I had this fun idea. We want to teach you the space of programming language design. We do this thing that we call mystery languages, which is super fun. Okay. So here's what happens with mystery languages. You get a syntactic description of the language and you write a program that matches the syntax and you click run, except instead of getting, you know, one answer, you might get three answers. Okay? So you type, you know, plus one, two, and it says three, three, three. You say plus five, seven, it says 12, 12, 12. Okay. What's going on? Well, what's actually going on is your program is actually being the same syntax is being evaluated under three different semantics. And your job is to write programs that will actually tell the difference. So, for example, you might try these examples and you're like, ah, it seems to be the same. Then you try one divided by zero and boom, one of them gives you error, one of them gives you infinity, and the third one gives you minus one or something like that. Like now you start, so you have to explore the language space this way. You bottom up, explore the language. You treat languages as black boxes and you probe them. You treat, use the experimental method to probe the language to figure out what's going on. It's just like, you know, a geologist picking up a rock you're picking up a language, right? And this is one of the ways in which we teach the design space of programming languages. Okay, so we've got this approach. And Justin had hacked up this thing in JavaScript and it was a complete nightmare. And you know, it was just like a complete, you know, it's what you'd expect. And I said, you know, I can't imagine, that I have, like Hashlang it will make this trivial, right? I can do this in a week. I sat down a week and we have a way better implementation on top of Hashlang. It's like, you know what, this is crazy. I've got 36 languages to implement and I'm building them in ad hoc ways in JavaScript. Racket has the machinery for abstracting and some of these are families of languages, the commonalities, and to abstract over them. I have the perfect tool. In fact, I helped design it. Why am I not using this? So after that, we started to embrace Hashlang and Racket and there's just like in, in my course, there's so many amazing things things we're able to do as a result, right? So I've sort of flipped around. And so it still feels wrong to be evangelistic about it, right? Students are taking my course to learn about programming languages broadly. They're not taking the course to be indoctrinated in Sri Ram. I still want to maintain some limits. I mean, I'll still make some snide remarks now and then. I still maintain some limits, but I, I think students are starting to see there's some power here that's not there in other languages, right? But, but your original question was, you know, sort of the racket team does this. And so, you know, it's like sort of pirate coming out of this tradition. But I would say it's actually the other way around, right? We started off building PLT scheme because we wanted more control over the scheme system back in 1995, right? I wanted a better user experience. Matthew wanted to be able to do things like he actually was building like notebook interfaces in 1995 and like embedded graphics and stuff like that, right? So he was coming at it from this point of view. I was coming at it from this point of view. And then Robbie said, let's make a nice IDE. And then we needed control over the language to do all of those things. But we were also writing a book, right? 
And so I think early on, the group self-selected for people who saw every single part of this edifice as a thing we can build ourselves, right? So I think that's always been our mentality. You need language, you go build it. You need a book, you go write it, right? You need to understand how this works, what the foundations are. You go do a research project on it. You write a paper about it, right? So I think that's sort of in the group's DNA. And so all this bootstrap stuff and the DCIC book and pirate and all that are just an outgrowth of the same thing. And I, I think I must at some level secretly select for students who have the same mindset too, so... Makes sense. And it's just one of those things you working in industry, there's a range of developers that you see of like, I'll just, you have left pad out there in the mm-hmm. JavaScript world, which is like, it's just easy. It's quick. It's, I can just get this or I copy yep. from Stack Overflow. And again, yep. Stack Overflow is great. Yep. But there's part of that. If you don't understand the context. <laughs> oh, yes. Then you potentially get into trouble in the long term because you don't understand. Again, going back and maintaining it or somebody else hands it off, there's not that traceability unless you actually put like, stole this from Stack Overflow, not really really quite sure why it's working. Again, yep. not everybody in the industry does it, but you see some people in there, you see people like, I'm going to build me a language. I'm going to try and build me a DSL or something to manage this. And yep. you see that range and Lisper seem to have a little bit more or the languages that are inspired by Lisp and want to take that. Lisp influence, and then you get Racket on top of that, which is like, no, 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 it's not just macros that we're doing. And you're not just building another language from macros and using that as your macro language. You're going full on. So I just, I wasn't sure your experience of having been in that community and seeing others through school and stuff of like where that falls in. Cause there's a little bit of that cursive Lisp. There's a little bit of that bipolar Lisp programmer that I've just seen recently as well, where it's like, I'm going to work on this. I can see this thing, but maybe I don't finish it or I don't ask for help to get it complete for everybody's use. And there's that weird range of, do I build my own lightsaber that people have talked about and things like that? Or do I just use what I do? Or like, I just use IntelliJ or Visual Studio Code out of the box versus I customize with a bunch of plugins and set all my key mappings and do what works for me. So the Racket community seems to have that ladder of like, I'm going to customize whatever it is. And I just wasn't sure if there was a mentality of people coming in and adopted or just appeal of that, that you've seen I think across so. the levels. I think absolutely. I think absolutely. And sometimes you see these questions, these discussions happening on, you know, the, the racket mailing list and people, these are clearly people who like to go deep, 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 right? And they can really, really get into some of the very technical aspects of the language. And I think it is the fact that Racket is this interesting thing that you can treat it as a closed language, just like you can treat a lot of other, you know, Java, for example, is a, you know, if you don't use the reflection APIs, it's a very closed language, right? It's very pinned down, right? You can treat Racket that way, but it has so many ways in which you can make it open, right? And that's sort of where the power comes from. And I think people invariably start getting attracted to it. Now, of course, you know, there's a, there's a trade-off there, right? Every time you do that, you're also, you may be inadvertently creating a headache for yourself down the road. So I think it, it's sort of the, you got to balance out those two parts and, you know, different people come down on different sides of that. And part of me is just the fanboy, admiration, geeky love of, when you say I built this out in a week or Dan Friedman's like, Oh, I knocked this out in like a day. I had this weird idea. I knocked this out in a day. It's like the fact that you're so good at those languages, you've gotten to it and you've got the tools that allow you to be like, 
oh, I knocked out this whole new programming language thing to prove out this concept <laughs> in a week because of the so, tools I have know, is the geek so aspiring, the as, aspiring in me. <laughs> there's this sense in which I think all of us programmers have forgotten. We have lost track of this very foundational fact, which is that programming is a kind of superpower. Okay. It's this ability to make worlds and to sort of bend things to our will. That is almost scary. And I give this, I, I illustrate this in the following way. It's, it's a little bit of a, you know, academic example, but I think, I think it'll resonate, right? So imagine you have to maintain a grade book, right? Like academics, teachers, professors, we've got to maintain grades, right? All through the semester, we accumulate grades. The end of the semester, we got to give grades, okay? There's a whole bunch of software. Every institution provides some software for keeping track of your grades, right? There's like some banner system or some wretched thing, Canvas banner, whatever. And they all uniformly suck. Right? They are just awful. They have some extraordinarily limited view of what it means to be a grade. It's always like some number between zero and 100. And they have some bizarrely silly linear function for like summing and averaging these things. You can't change your representations. You can't change your functions. You can't say like, I want to have this weird quadratic formula. Like as the semester goes along, I want to grow your grade in the following way. Right? I want to put the weights on a quadratic okay? or an exponential. Who knows, right? I mean, I don't do that, but I'm saying maybe I want to do that, right? Maybe I don't want to represent things between zero and 100. In fact, we routinely, we hand out, you know, this is something we've done even under Matthias Reese to this, right? Uh, we hand out, you know, check, check plus, check minus, and zero. Check means you did fine. Check minus means something is missing. Check plus means you went above and beyond. And then, you know, zero means you got a zero. You didn't turn anything in, okay? Which numbers are those? Those don't correspond to any numbers. That's a new data type, okay? What do you do? Well, what ends up happening is the software is normative. The software drives the process. And everybody who's ever been stuck with a business process, you know, like every corporate business system, we know this, right? The software is normative and it tells us how the world should be. It picks some very limited ontology of the world and it imposes that ontology on everybody else, right? Well, what we have as programmers, now we can't go up against the bureaucracy, right? But as long as the bureaucracy sets the right interface, ooh, now we've got, a, we've got an opening, right? So for example, the university bureaucracy does not say you have, at least at Brown, fortunately, does not say you have to use our gradebook software. What it says is at the end of the semester, you have to upload grades. That's all it says. That's the interface, right? The gradebook software is implementation, but the grades are the interface, right? So what do we do? I, like literally every assignment, sometimes even on the fly, we decide, you know what? Just based on the kinds of homeworks we're seeing, we're going to grade on this other scale instead, okay? We can make up any scale we want because I know no matter what we do, at the end of the day, I always have to spend one hour writing code to slurp in this database and turn it into a grade sheet that I can work with, right? And I know I can do it. I have that 100% confidence. All of us who have enough programming ability have that 100% confidence that we know it can be done, right? And that is so liberating. It's just such a liberating feeling to say, we can make it work. Don't worry about it, right? Now, this may also be like the worst of computer science, right? It's like, ah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll release AI systems and yeah, people will die, but we'll figure it out, right? So, but that's not what's happening here, just to be clear, right? I'm not endorsing that. But, but, that, but there is that, the, the negative side also has a positive side, which is that superpower feeling right? I'm not constrained in a way that the pro professor who can't program is profoundly constrained. And that mindset, 
I think what Racket does is it takes it up like three notches, right? You can go into namespaces, you can go into here, you can go into there, you can do process control, all of these things, right? There's a, there's a unifying principle in Racket which says, anytime you have to refer to the external system, that's a flaw in the language design, right? Now, sometimes it's unavoidable, right? Like, I mean, you got to like talk to network and stuff like that. But if you can't get programmatic control over something, you want to change the language till eventually you can get programmatic control, right? So processes and namespaces and all these things are not left to some other device. They're contained in the language, right? And then hashlang just becomes a generalization of that. Hashlang is, well, okay, if I can change all of these things, why can't I change this one other thing too? It's like, ah, well, that one is too much. Well, why? Well, okay, I guess you can. I have this one fun hashlang on my on my GitHub site, which is it's it's like my favorite prank bracket language, right? So it's a language where all the rules of evaluation, the syntax, everything's the same as racket. But if you happen to write variable names that exactly match the syntax of a Roman numeral, they are actually a number, right? So if you write plus vx parentheses, you get 15 back, right? And why just, I mean, obviously I'm just screwing around here, right? But the point being that that's a kind of power and maybe there's an actual good use for it, right? There is a place, for example, I mean, that's that's obviously a goofy, goofy example, but imagine that what you wanted to do was some kind of internationalization, right? What that needs is you need to be able to reach in and pull out all of a certain kind of datum, like all of the strings, right? Well, now we're talking about something much more serious than, you know, Roman numerals, right? The Roman numeral one's actually a joke. It's a, it's a tribute to Dan, because Dan likes to say, you know, Dan, whenever people talk to him about S expressions, Dan would say, representations really matter. And, you know, his sort of running joke was, you know, what caused the fall of the Roman Empire? It's Roman numerals, right? You couldn't do arithmetic with it conveniently. And that must have been what caused the fall of the Roman Empire. So I was like, Roman numerals, like a little nod to Dan, right? Like, thank you, Dan. But the point being that there are serious uses for those same features, which is that ability to reflect, that ability to rewrite, that ability to inspect comes with some really, really powerful feature, you know, utilities in other, other places. Right? So I think it's just that natural instinct, that programmer superpower instinct, combined with this thing of saying, we're not so opinionated to think we know exactly what the language should be. What we are going to do is, you know, language as a service, right? We're going to give you the primitives. We're going to give you a runtime system, a garbage collector and stuff like that. And then we're going to give you some basic features. You build what you need on top of that. If I could give you an example, do you know the father time language? I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, you should see Father Time. You should check out Father Time. So Father Time is a functional reactive language built in Racket. So it's a very elegant idea where we use the macro system to rewrite all function applications. If the values are just regular Racket values, they just pass through. But if they are reactive values, then every they, they sort of infect expressions, outer and outer expressions into being reactive. And so you can do some really beautiful stuff where you get like this reactive language, the essence of which is like, you know, a few dozen lines of code. And then there's this very cool thing where we use like macros and mixins to convert existing object-oriented APIs and turn them into reactive APIs, right? So that was another thing where Racket was the perfect place to experiment with that. We wanted to get the idea into the broader world, so we translated all of that into JavaScript and created a system called Flapjacks. And a whole bunch of reactive systems have since been influenced by Flapjacks. What they don't know is they've actually been influenced by, you know, Racket. So that's how that story always goes. And again, just seeing some of the stuff that people talk about with those hashlings was like, was it Matthew Flat? One of the people involved in RacketCon was like, 
oh, we've got the video presentation stitched together language for like doing your slides and capturing the video and exporting it out to a movie file and everything. You're like, and that's just this, and that's just this weird small little language that you're like, oh, I just threw this together in like half a day because we need to get this done. I'm like, <laughs> everything's a language. Once you start looking, everything's a language. And once, once that bug infects you, you can't unsee it. I feel like every time we infect somebody with that virus, Racket has succeeded. We've like we've we've gotten one more host. And I'm sure we could keep going forever. I'll have, I'm sure I'll have to get you back on to just dig into more stories, dig into more details. But we're going in on time. I'm keeping. I yes. don't want to keep you too much longer. RacketCon. We kind of talked before. You're, there's a yeah, little bit. Do you want? Can you tease RacketCon for this year? RacketCon is back on. So it's 2022 when this call is being recorded. And as of now, we fully plan to have RacketCon in person once again. It's going to be in Providence, Rhode Island. I'll be hosting it at Brown. Jesse Alama is working with me on the design of it. And so we're going to be in Providence once again. Providence is just south of Boston, easy commuter rail access. And there's train access from all points in the northeast from Washington, D.C. and Virginia on upward. So we're easy to get to. We're uh, going to be a lot cheaper than a city like Boston or New York. We'll actually host it most probably on the Brown campus itself. So I would love to have you come attend RacketCon and I'd love to host you here. And I'll get some announcements going for that in the show notes so people can keep up to date and no, when the dates are announced, any other program stuff, and it'll be late October. We, we we're going to put out an exact date, but it'll be late October. And when tickets become available, so I'll make sure to announce those for anybody else Fantastic. who's interested in that. Fantastic, thank you. Is there anything else you want to shout out, mention that we'd be remiss before I let you go? Plug. Uh, we could go on forever. We'll just do this another time. Oh, I just didn't know if there were any other just promotional things you wanted to point people to that we haven't covered that you want to just recommend as a quick thing that might be worth no, noting. you know what I'll, I'll make a pitch for i'll make a pitch for our ignorance i think we have a we're in a very 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 early stage of something fantastical right we're in the same stage that we're in the stage where physics was you know 2000 bce or something like that right and so when people have really, really strong opinions about something, I always wonder, you know, will those opinions last? And, you know, we have the advantage of having had centuries, millennia of, you know, the figuring out the methods of science and so on. But I think we know so little that, to me, all of this is a giant playground of ignorance that we should try to mine and figure out, like, what can we figure out? What can we actually say with any certainty? And I think we need theories of computing and theories of education and theories of psychology and theories of humanity to figure out, like, how to get the knowledge on all these points. And that's what, to me, is, like, the most exciting part of it. Well, that sounds like a great call-out. We mentioned RacketConf. I'll get some links to the site so people can follow along. Bootstrap the how to design program site, where's the best place for people to track you down. I'll get those in the show notes so people can follow along, keep up to date with what you're going on aside from the main topics. Right now I seem to be active on Twitter. I guess that's a place. We'll see what happens to Twitter in the next few months, but I seem to be there. You know, people drop me email every now and then. I have a blog that that is slower than molasses. It takes me months to write a blog post. So like every six months or so I drop a blog post. I don't think that's very useful, but I'm trying to not do a blog. I'm trying to write essays, not a blog. 
right? That's really the thing. I call it the blog site, but it's really essays, and I want to keep every essay up to date. So the more essays I write, the harder it becomes to keep them all up to date. And so it's this very painful sort of uh, perfectionist attitude that's uh, just, you know, the way I think I want to try try this out. So, Well, I'll find those links, get them added to I'll the show I'll send you notes. some links. How's that? That works too. And I'll make sure to get them added to the show notes so people can follow along, keep up to date with Wonderful. everything we talked about and what's going on with you in your world. So Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you for this. I'm sure I'll have to get you back on hopefully sooner than later. But in the meantime, thank you so much for taking your time to join me today. Oh, it was my a pleasure. pleasure. Talking I really you. appreciate what you're doing. I mean, this look, when I started out, when I was when I started functional programming, I said 1989. And in the early 90s, it was this was not going to happen. The idea, I mean, we couldn't imagine podcasts, but even if we could imagine podcasts, the idea that there'd be a podcast for functional programming was unimaginable. So so as somebody who lived like decades in the wilderness, I can't tell you how exciting it is that you've like formed this community and there's all these people and rubbing along. I think it's just so amazing. It's just so great. Well, as you said, your chance of rubbing shoulders and getting to talk to these people in academia and hoping to pick up 10%, this is my, I hope to pick up one, uh, I hope to pick up 1% of this. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing much more than that. Thank you so much. Thank you. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Sri Ram, for taking your time to join me today. We'll get you back on and we'll promote RacketCon to get people out there and maybe people can meet you in person. Sounds great. I look forward to seeing as many of you as I can. Bye-bye. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.